0: Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect.
2: The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and Principal of Accurate, Tom Duro
1: Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome William J. Bates, fellow of the American Institute of Architects from the AIA Pittsburgh and AIA Pennsylvania elected 2018 first vice president and 2019 president elect bill served as a member of the board of directors since 2011 along with the stints as vice president and chair of the board community committee from 2015 to 2016 bill is also vice president of real estate at eaton park hospitality group incorporated and an adjunct professor at carnegie mellon university for more information feel free to visit www.soa.com cmu.edu slash bill dash bates. That's soa.cmu.edu dot dot slash bill dash bates. Hello, Bill. We're honored and thrilled to have you on the Modern Architect Radio Show today. Hello, Tom. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Bill. And again, really appreciate you being so gracious in our delay to to do to our, our show. It really shows as I, I told you earlier the AIA is definitely going to is in for a treat and uh, will be well represented with your leadership sir really mean that sincerely well thank you Uh, Bill you know I'd like to start with can you share uh, maybe an early experience or or as far back as you can recall of how you you know became an architect or what maybe of even if you go into your childhood what sort of epiphany or epiphanies may have happened that you kind of look back and say, you know, I recall this and it it kind of called to you, so to speak, if you're at liberty to share with us.
3: Sure. Happy to do it. You know, it's interesting growing up in an in African-American in, in the, you know, in Pittsburgh, or it's a small community, actually, Cannonsburg was a smaller town outside Pittsburgh. I, I really didn't know any architects, didn't know any engineers or any professionals. I mean, my uh, father was a steel worker, as as was my grandfather. So one thing I, I do recall was being very interested in making things. And I had toy blocks, bricks, and I, I built houses and offices and things and bridges. Did you and,
1: really, as a child? Yeah,
3: in a rector set and things like that. Uh-huh. But I, I didn't know what architecture was about. I had no no idea, no conception of uh, of what architecture was. And so, and it wasn't till I got uh, into high school that I uh, started uh, thinking about uh, careers beyond you know just working in a steel mill or something you know similar to what my father had done. And uh, I started to look at engineering, and uh, Uh then um, along the pathway, I was interviewing uh, with a couple of colleges. One of the interviewers mentioned to me at the end of the interview, or uh, an engineering program at uh, Uh Cornell, said, um, you know, it's funny, you don't strike me as... An engineer, and uh, he said, "Oh, really?" really and, uh, he said, <laughs> no, "Yeah." He said, "You mentioned numerous times that you like to draw, which is okay, but that's you know not something that's part of engineering. And you you like to make things and create things." He said, "Have you ever considered architecture?" And I said, uh, hmm. "How do you spell that?" And, <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you really?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, more or less. I said, really? What? Yeah. Architecture? I never really thought yeah. about ar- architecture. Yeah. And, I, and so I rushed home and I did research, You went know, to the library and looked it up. And it was before the internet, of course. Oh, and yeah. So, yeah. so uh, you know, I, I looked it up and I thought, oh, no, this sounds pretty interesting. You know, I had taken... All the courses that would dovetail with architecture when I was in high school, and mechanical drawing, and, and art, and then science, you know, physics and and uh, chemistry and things like that. Uh, so.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, that was, you know, the first time I even considered the possibility, and, and it seemed to be a, something that was intriguing. So I shifted my application and um, went to school at uh, University of Notre Dame where I worked on my architecture degree, Bachelor of Architecture, and I, I just loved it. It was, <laughs> I felt guilty about getting grades for that. I thought, this is too much fun. <laughs> Did you really?
1: Yeah. That's great uh, that you note that, because I recall uh, reading, uh, obviously, uh, doing, uh, working uh, on before our show, and you said you felt guilty because you loved it so much. Yeah, I I just thought it was great. and So
3: it was a perfect fit for me. You know, I I enjoyed school. I did well. We we had, um, you know, a great uh, program that I went through with uh, Notre Dame, and I got to study architecture, both... uh, in um, the States as well as spending a year abroad in Rome. And so Mm -hmm. it was just a wonderful experience and broadened my horizons in a way that I never imagined.
1: Yeah, well, that was an excellent uh, description of, uh, you know, how it kind of struck you. So it sounds like it really kind of, it was a calling.
3: Yeah, I guess so. You know, maybe I was pursuing that path all along, even as a kid, you know, making model cars and planes and, you know, <laughs> assembling pieces and making, um, you know, boats and things. But uh, it was finding something that allowed me to apply all of those interests yeah. in a profession, which
1: was, was fun. Yeah. Now you have a, a, a long history of interna- international development experience. So share with us, if, if you will. Well, some of uh, your experiences.
3: Sure, I had um, you know, been fortunate enough when I got out of school to find a uh, firm that I worked in that was a small architectural firm, and that firm was focused on K through 12 work. And so we did schools in the area and and uh, new schools and renovations. and And eventually, after uh, some years, they invited me to become a partner in the firm, mm-hmm. which I did. And uh, worked in that role for probably about five or six years beyond it, you know, as a partner. But then business slowed down. As you can imagine, there are ups and downs in the architectural profession. And so I was already in the AIA at that point, and I got uh, a call from an acquaintance from the uh, local AIA chapter. And that individual was a person who, uh, an architect working within corporation he worked at Westinghouse Electric and it was uh you know just by coincidence that uh, it was a slow time in my firm and and he called and said you know we we have someone an architect who's retiring and uh we're looking for someone to replace him and you know, he he thought I might be someone interested uh in the position so uh, he asked me if I'd uh, apply, which I did, and um, you know, as you know fate would have it, I got the, got the job. Then that that sort of launched me into corporate practice, which gave me an opportunity to practice both uh, across the nation and internationally. So um, yeah, it was very fortunate.
1: Excellent. You know, I've been um, thoughts kind of. I've thought about it and I actually think about it a lot. And it actually, you, uh, for our, our audience, might think, how did you move to this? But I don't know if you, if you, uh, well, I, I like jazz music and there's a great pianist named Ahmad Jamal. Oh, And uh, yeah. I was listening to it. Oh, okay. You, you, so you're, you're aware of him? No of him. It said something, it was being interviewed by uh, the station and they said, you know, how do you feel being influencing so many other musicians with uh, with your creativity? And, uh, there was a pause and when he got back on, he says, well, I really don't create anything. It's about discovery. I discover. And, uh, and then he proceeded, he said, uh, he continued on for about another sentence or two and I literally turned off the radio because it just struck me so, uh, as it does right now, just like. He's looking at his his great work, and he looks at his discovery. And then I've seen other quotes by Michelangelo who says that, I, I, like, I removed the stone, and David was there. That type of thing. What's your thoughts on creativity and discovery? I don't know if there's one more important than the other, but uh, I'd love to hear your your uh, your take on it, Bill.
3: Yeah, I yeah, I really like that quote. I think it has a lot to do with uh, creativity. The two are related. Discovery and creativity—you know—it's sometimes so important with architecture because you're you're asked to be creative, and uh, that's that's what we we pride ourselves. And it's something that is is difficult to force, and so it, it happens when it happens. So the notion of uh, discovery plays into that, and in that uh, as you explore things and, and discover new things you find that creativity springs from that, I think. So it's, I really like that. I'll have to you know make a note of that
1: myself,
3: <laughs> okay. but uh, yeah. it's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I like, I like quotes. Um, I don't know if it's because it's, it's, it seemed, it may seem rather simplistic to, to look at that, but it, as I said, it literally, it stopped me to go, wow, that's an, another way to look at it. Bill, share with us some of your early experiences and in, in, in when you first Became an architect, you know. Some, if you even share some stories, if you will, or a story that uh, you know where something may have been challenging. I mean, it's, I mean, they're all challenging, but where it was particularly challenging, it just turned out absolutely wonderful. If you know, you're, well, you know, at liberty to do so.
3: Yeah, there are challenges every day. I think that uh, one of the things that uh, is a challenge is to try to find places where we can learn things. And and oftentimes it's the uh, the failures where we learn the most. So you know I've been accused of being very resilient by some, and 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 it's maybe a result of of things that um, maybe didn't turn out quite as you originally expect them to. But uh, you learn something and you apply that to the next uh, challenge. You know I've had a lot of interesting projects that uh, have have been. Fun to work on. You know, when I started out, I was um, pursuing more traditional practice. I enjoyed that. I found that it gave me a chance to be creative in some respects. Though, you know, with that stage, I was still pretty new in the practice and and so had a lot to learn. Uh, And I think that you come out of school feeling as though. uh, you know enough to really go out there and and do all sorts of great things, but the more you spend uh, time practicing, the more you realize how how little you know. So uh, the projects that I've worked on, uh, whether they're small projects in schools in, in K through twelve uh, practice, or some of the larger pro- projects uh, in the, the corporate realm, have been very um, very satisfying. I think, and, and so. I've had challenges where I've had to sort of try to convince clients to do what I think is the right thing. Not that my opinion is always right, but but oftentimes as a designer, you you realize that uh, they're asking the wrong questions or asking the architect to solve the wrong problems. Oftentimes I try to spend a fair amount of time getting them to step back and look at the bigger issues and think about what the architecture that they're asking to be designed can really do. You know, there are broader implications to every building, every project. And so that's one of the things that I've been uh, focused on all of my career, just uh, trying to look at influence and impact of the building beyond the walls and uh, beyond the property lines because it's really important that we put um, the, the right building within a community and uh, it has an impact on the, the lives of everyone who lives and works there. It can change the image of a community
1: so anyway excellent. You're listening to the modern architect KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM.
2: Imagine if you couldn't hear us right now or enjoy KCSU's music, public affairs programs. Disabling hearing loss affects 48 million Americans and more than 360 million people worldwide. Yet many do not have access to hearing devices. Starkey Hearing Foundation brings understanding among people through hearing care. The foundation gives away more than 175,000 hearing aids every year. To meet its goals, it needs generous donations from people like you. If you're interested in learning more, visit StarkeyHearingFoundation.org.
1: We're talking today with William J. Bates, fellow of the American Institute of Architects, 2018 AIA National Vice President and President-elect of the AIA National for 2019. For more information, feel free to visit soa.cmu.edu slash bill dash bates that's soa.cmu.edu slash bill dash bates bill what recent projects are you uh, working on or currently working on if you're at liberty to share with us
3: well a corporation that i work for now is a uh, restaurant chain and we've got about 75 restaurants in western pennsylvania ohio and west virginia and uh, we um Recently developed a uh, new concept called uh, Hello Bistro. It's something that we're replicating now. My role is uh, VP of of real estate. is focused on identifying new sites and negotiating new leases and purchasing property. And then I work with the uh, the team to uh, to build out this space. Much of it's more uh, focused on. This new concept that we uh, are rolling out. Our long line of other restaurants has been around since 1949 and uh, started out as a big boy franchise and then evolved oh. into a family restaurant. So,
1: that's, Yeah, that's exactly. That's that's so what you're I, at I, the helm of that. that that's yeah. Uh, yeah. Our, not always uh, our vice presidents of real estate architects. Or maybe they are and we're not aware of it, but I think that's a very wise choice. I'm, of course, biased from the show, and, and I, I really feel strongly that uh, in leadership positions, particularly when it pertains to the built environment, even cities, that when you have an architect with uh, their expertise, their skill sets, and their often DNA that it actually makes for uh, a more sustainable and better cities and obviously uh, communities and lives. Maybe I'm reaching, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
3: No, no, you're absolutely right. And I think it's something that I've learned over the years uh, working in uh, the corporate environment and something I realized I, I was aware of somewhat so in, in private practice. But oftentimes, when when you're asked to um, take on a new commission as an architect in private practice, mm-hmm. uh, you're you're given a set of constraints like the site, the location, and the budget, and things like that, and and sometimes other parameters that really restrict the design. And all of those decisions, more likely than not, have been made by people who have no clue as to what uh, architectural design can do for people so they you know either accountants or lawyers or other executive managers people with MBAs uh, who think that they can just say let's let's build a building and, and really not uh, <laughs> uh, involve uh, good design thinking early on and and, and I think one of the things I'd like to advocate in my role at the AIA is to encourage architects to expand their involvement and pursue non traditional careers because they can have a huge impact on the built environment. And even though they may not be directly involved in design, they're doing design thinking and making decisions that impact the projects. So and that's what I've been doing over the past 30 years. Since uh, going into corporate practice, I've watched boards of directors make <laughs> bad decisions and <laughs> really make projects <laughs> difficult. So what I've had the opportunity to do over the years, and you know working uh, with companies like uh, Westinghouse, I went from a five person firm to a hundred and twenty thousand employee firm in that first move, and then eventually, after about ten years left Westinghouse and went to a, a a regional bank that was growing. And so through that time, I began to find paths of access to the CEOs. So once I got their ear, I was able to talk to them about what architects can really do in, in the boardroom and uh, just in helping uh, them make decisions that they're not familiar with, uh, you know, things like, design and and uh, community and strategy and things like that. I even worked for a high-tech startup. Then uh, we had uh, Silicon Valley as well as uh, around the world. Ended up uh, working uh, on offices and manufacturing and research facilities for them on every continent except Antarctica. Really? <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, so, my goodness, Bill. So that, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I love that. That was a lot of fun. What you're doing is affecting, really, it comes down to, I think, people. And it sounds like you're, as much as you have the technical expertise and the uh, and the built environment, uh, definitely awareness and how to make it better and sustainable, you, it, it sounds like I, I get a lot of the feeling for you, Bill, is that you really care about people. And it's yeah. the design kind of extends outward. Am I reaching or...
3: No, you're you're right on target. You know, we're starting to understand now through research that our buildings, as we look at our communities, our buildings have an impact not only physically on the people, but it also has a social impact and a psychological impact on the, the well-being and interaction of people. And so um, we really have to pay attention to that and, you know, use those research results to apply things to what we design tomorrow. So that's really important. And and having influence on policymaking is really critical. Mm -hmm. So it frees up the architect and other designers to be more imaginative and, and have a broader impact on the occupants of the building. It's not not just about making money. It's uh, about affecting lives.
1: I'd like that affecting life. It, 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 the influence on policy making. Can you share with us, you know, either either examples or ideas that you've seen, experienced, or would like to see influence relating to people in the influence of policy making by architects.
3: Well, you know there are a number of things that uh, that affect people on a daily basis, you know, whether it's housing and safety. We have um, policies that are being made by legislators and uh, city council members who you know make decisions about where a highway runs through mm-hmm. a, a given community and uh, oftentimes, those decisions are for uh, infrastructure like that affect the uh, access of a community to certain things like schools or or businesses or severs a community and sometimes segregates a community oftentimes you you see a, a highway that it's like the old adage of living on the wrong side of the track. Sometimes yes. we build the track uh, to divide communities and, and we sort oh. of force things to happen that, that sort of strangle community from the uh, uh, valuable assets that it needs in other parts of a city. So those decisions need to be studied and understood very carefully before being financed and and I think architects are probably the best equipped to, uh, to I help think, in
1: help I absolutely agree. In fact, I think you ought to be uh, mandatory within city councils. I'm, of course, voicing an opinion, but we're, it is a college radio station. So, uh, <laughs> um, But there's a strong opinion that every uh, city ought to have in leadership an architect in place. And, of course, the skill sets and aptitudes and Sure. Are vary between architects, just like they would a dentist or a physician or an attorney. But I think with that uh, that experience, it really makes a difference and an influence. Like you, as you said, influence policy making. It ought to be, I think, at the helm of a city. Almost every city, if not mandatory, I don't know if you can ever enact that. But um, sure. I, in fact, I think uh, I don't think I know. Los Angeles, uh, the city of Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti has now called CDO, Chief Design Officers, Christopher Hawthorne, who was a former architecture critic at the Los Angeles Times, is uh, in essence sort of his right-hand man to oversee the city and obviously address the homelessness issues that are getting uh, more and more by the month almost in uh, California in particular. He has that sort of influence. Do you see other cities potentially or prospectively going that route where they oh. actually have an architect that's on staff not just in the planning commission not a planning a planner but an actual architect
3: right well you know if you look at um, cities like the new york city for example they have a chief architect city ar- architect it happens to be a woman who is just doing some incredible things. She's looking at changing the uh, nature of institution of prisons and how they transition uh, prisoners from um, incarceration to a useful life. And, and she's she's really been active in all sorts of things that, that are changing communities so yeah it would be you know just natural for an architect to think about broader things you know not just you know buildings but yeah. but how you know the people work between buildings and the space between buildings and the the interaction of people so, and there are numerous cities that are, are working in that direction. We at the AIA have just been building a, a new collaboration with the uh, Congress of Mayors. And uh, so we're starting to work closely with them. And we've been meeting with them just recently in South by Southwest down in Austin to talk to the mayors and, and help them understand what we might be able to, to share. And we've done some things likewise. In the past, I I was involved in something called Remaking Cities, which here in Pittsburgh was a big event that was initiated by the AIA, the local chapter, when I was president here of uh, the chapter. It was at a time, a crucial time in Pittsburgh's history, when the city was undergoing the decline of its steel industry. It's, It's always been known as a steel town. But uh, that collapsed back in the 80s, and so the mills went dark. There were all these vacant properties that were abandoned by uh, industrial properties. So uh, we um, we developed the SWAT team and uh, brought uh, developers and architects and urban planners together and assessed the problems, listen to the community to understand what their issues were and then made recommendations. And, and we did this in a, a week-long conference that um, got uh, attention internationally. We, we brought um, people, architects, and planners from all over the world to uh, the city, and uh, we held this conference and made recommendations for Pittsburgh. And the process, which was called a RUDAT, Regional Urban Design Assistance Team, okay. the process has been... Replicated around the world and, and continues to be. And, you know, they're working on projects in, in Ireland and in Kenya and other places in Germany, UK. So mm-hmm. it's something that we can do to promote broader change, and have a bigger impact beyond just one building at a time, and show the world that we're not a commodity. We're not someone you call in after you've made all the decisions. <laughs> Uh, You can approach us with big questions, big problems, and we can solve them. That's changed Pittsburgh from being a rust belt city to a high-tech startup city. We've got Eds and Meds now driving the the agenda instead of steel. Uh, We've cleaned up our image. A city has been named uh, by Rand McNally as one of the most livable cities in the country. And we, I, I'd like to think that our effort by the
1: year <laughs> had something. Excellent, outstanding. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM.
2: Each year, the lighthouse touches the lives of thousands of people, people who have been blind their whole lives because of eye disease or trauma. The lighthouse works to help people achieve independence equality, and self-reliance through rehabilitation training and needed services. This includes access to employment, education, and vital government information. You can help. Donations are always appreciated. To learn more, visit lighthouse-sf.org.
1: We're talking today with William J. Bates, fellow of the American Institute of Architects, 2018 AIA National Vice President and President-elect president elect of the AIA National for 2019. For more information, feel free to visit soa.cmu.edu slash bill-bates. That's soa.cmu.edu slash bill-bates. bill if you could see me just before we, we 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 did our break, I was so giddy about you describing how Pittsburgh has just transformed and how architecture has such a major major influence in that. I mean, how do you feel about doing that with even the rest of the country? I know you said that even the world has taken a look and seen how how it's work. How how do you? It almost seems like like it's new, well, not new in the sense that it's new to do it, but it just has this rebirth, so to speak of the potential of cities and communities and positivity of of lives. Yeah, I, I you
3: know, I I'm, I'm excited about what uh, the prospects are across the country. There you know, cities that have been evolving everywhere you look. And especially today when we see the, the national agenda is shifting away from some of the issues that we, we'd like to have them focus on, sustainability, resilience, and, and uh, equity for various communities and populations. We think there's great potential with uh, the federal government sort of reducing its influence. It gives us great potential within the cities and communities to sort of step up and take control of that. And that's why we're working with mayors and uh, engaging with cities in terms of using things like the RuDat we have we've also joined a uh, an effort by the UN to engage in something called the new urban agenda in which they are promoting change within communities at the city level and so uh that's why I think uh, we're seeing cities really ramp up on things even though the the Paris uh, climate uh, agreement was mm-hmm was retreated, Um, you know, the U.S. at the federal level retreated from it. Many cities have continued to advocate for it and signed up. And so there's a lot of things we can do to present, ourselves, our our cities with change and improve the quality of life. It's about, you know, enriching our culture, our society, and building our communities in a way that, that enrich the lives of those who live in it.
1: Yes, and you're definitely doing that. And um, have you ever just sat back mm-hmm. even once? I know you, you're constantly working, but ever sat back and just look at what it is you did from the beginning to somewhat of a com- the, the completion and said, oh my, look at this. When you see, uh, it's, it may seem a little dramatic, but I'm taking literally when you see kids playing and chasing each other and having fun at a park that once was not a park.
3: Sure, sure. Yeah, well, you know, we, we I am living and working in an environment like that. Things change. The cities are sort of think of them as like a uh, a, a quilt, you know, a patchwork quilt, mm, and excellent. they've got different squares on that quilt or triangles. Uh, you know, may have different functions. And um, we, uh, as a profession, we we tend to to deal with small stitches in that quilt, uh, but oftentimes there are areas that um become tattered and so okay. we we have an opportunity to go in and replace a section and those are great opportunities and, and we you know have Pittsburgh's an example of that where those industrial sites were very close to the city or communities that were built around those once they became vacant we we tried to recommend some rehabilitation of those sites mm-hmm. and and it's provided great opportunities for many of the communities in this area and i I think it happens in other parts of the the country too in that uh communities who may not have had any access to the rivers we've got a lot of rivers three rivers here yes bridges one a lot of shoreline and the rivers were never considered an opportunity for recreation so what uh, we've been able to do is open those up. And now there are bike trails and boat docks and things along the rivers and a lot more greenery, uh, as well as shopping areas and hotels and, and apartments uh, you know, along each side of the river. And, and so the industrial past is, uh, has been changed. Uh, it's provided mm-hmm. an opportunity for us to to uh, redevelop those areas and make them more uh, accommodating and, and uh, appealing for everyday life.
1: That's terrific. He, he had said something a, a bit ago, um, and I, I find it really interesting, calling it the space between buildings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know what to. Th- uh, th- I get the visual on it, but I, if you if you will share with that, I like that. That the space between buildings. Well
3: yeah, you know uh, often you know you get you get tied up in the building itself and that's that's a hard piece you know hardscape, if you will, you know and, and then there's all these spaces between the buildings that are just as important, and uh, oftentimes those become a squeeze more and more, and so they become smaller and smaller and more likely to be parking lots as opposed to parks. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, over the years, I've been involved in uh, some boards, uh, volunteer nonprofit boards, and one of um, the appointments that I was, that I accepted was uh, a county parks commission seat that uh, made me realize that there are green spaces that really are underappreciated and underused. And those green spaces sometimes can be just little parks between a few buildings or in a neighborhood, or they can be large parks. And uh, quality of that space can be just as enriching to someone's life as, you know, a a brand new apartment building or office space. And and we've worked very carefully, even on some of the the buildings, we built a headquarters for a uh, high-tech startup here. That uh, was about uh, six hundred thousand square feet on a campus of a thousand acres. We uh, put green space in, but we rather than mowed lawns, we had meadows that we allowed the oh. grass to grow eighteen inches or so high, and that brought in wildlife—you know, the birds, the nesting birds, the ground nesting birds, and and deer. And and uh, at first, Does we got a lot really? of pushback. Oh, yeah. My you know, people push back and say, "You're not. We're not mowing the lawn. The place looks, you know, unkempt." And uh, <laughs> and, and and after, you know, I had to explain a little bit uh, to to tell them why we were doing this. You know, it was you know sustainable because we weren't sure. using as much uh, uh, gasoline to you know mow lawns. We were allowing uh, nature to work its way in, and so then you know after that, people started to stand at the windows and look out and watch, you know, you could see him pointing at things. Oh, look at that, you know, th- there's a nest over there or, or oh. you could see where the the deer had slept overnight because oh. the the uh, grass was sort of compressed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there there are things like that, you know, sort of it the, the space between buildings just as important as um the space inside
1: buildings. So, Anyway, Excellent. I, that's a I, quote I, in itself, Bill, Bill. That's great. Now, speaking of quotes, I have <laughs> another one, and I you share your thoughts on this because you, you, you shared with us how you have to explain a little bit to those who aren't as uh, aware of it or just just seeing it. Is um, there is a quote by of all people, a, fil- a former filmmaker named Federico Fellini, and I don't mm. know exactly what it is, but I'll, I know I do understand the essence, and he said, "The visionary is the only true." Realist.
3: Hmm. Boy. Yeah.
1: That's. <laughs> That's heavy, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean did to the, do it on a show free. like this, but <laughs> but, well, but, but, it, but it, well, it struck me when you had said that you had to explain how this is that that's referring to the space between buildings. How this is what it's going to become, and it you know initially it looked like to some to some folk this, that that uh, you know it's uncamped or it's the it's the lawn lot mode, and then it slowly became you see the uh, a nest and then a deer right. a, where deer were there, and, and, right. and it changes. And they couldn't see that initially, but obviously you and, uh, the group that you work with did see it. And, uh, so that's where I thought the quote was kind of relevant. Yeah. Is, uh, well, yeah, um, the, yeah, the visionary is the only, realist. The only real, true realist. Yeah. That's true it real. was either real realist or true realist, but, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I I'm just curious I, to your thoughts on that. I, I like
3: that. And, you know, I think okay. that's, uh, that's true, you know, and we have to be visionary, and as architects, I think we're we're trained to visualize things you know, that that aren't there. You know that can bring you know bring us to a new reality, preferred reality, and uh, you know oftentimes, as I was saying before, many of the decisions and policies are being made by people who are absorbed and trained to watch numbers. Or, or mm-hmm. yes, you know, It's very you know. You got to count it. If you can't count it, then it doesn't doesn't count. You know, <laughs> and, uh, there are so many important things that are intangible that can't be counted, and uh, the challenge that we face is in a profession like this is showing the value of the things that can't be counted. You know the shape of something being. You know they're, they're starting to realize that curved walls in spaces make people feel better, and uh, higher ceilings allow students to uh, to learn more effectively in a classroom. If you go by only what can be counted, you can say, well, okay, the the classroom only needs to have a ceiling that's that's uh, eight feet high because people don't grow any higher than that and, and it's more efficient. And we can have cubicles that are five by five and, and we can squeeze more people. And, and, and this is what's been happening. You know, The drive to count things and shrink things to the minimum and make them more efficient from a numerical standpoint has sort of stripped away the vision and the the spirit and space that people need to to be themselves feel free so yeah, we're um that's there's
1: outstanding a lot. bill what a great take on that this is <laughs> let's go back to that if you don't mind this is the sure. modern architect kzsu 90.1 fm stanford university
2: The Youth Movement Against Alzheimer's promotes awareness and understanding of Alzheimer's disease by providing high school and college-age students with opportunities for volunteering, clinical research, and fundraising with the ultimate goal of spreading compassion and empathy for those afflicted with the disease and encouraging advocacy to do everything possible to ultimately find a cure. If you'd like to donate, visit theyouthmovement.org.
1: We're talking today with William J. Bates, fellow of the American Institute of Architects, 2018 AIA National Vice President and President-Elect of the AIA National for 2019. For more information, feel free to visit soa.cmu.edu slash bill-bates. That's soa-cmu.edu slash bill-bates. Bill, about that quote you said was the value of things that can't be counted. Yeah. Well, Share then. with us or elaborate a little bit on. That's that's uh, profound. Well, yeah, there are, you know, there are so many things
3: that we take for granted. And, and you know, that was one of the things that uh, I, I think having a, an opportunity to study abroad in an ancient city like Rome offered as a lesson. I... Um, I noticed that there were little details, you know, on the corner of a street, a little fountain, or you know, just the the fact that my the room in the, the um, albergo that I lived in was was very small, not a lot, not much bigger than the bed that was in there, but oh, really? but the ceiling was very high, and it had you know these wonderful windows that looked out mm. on the street, you know, the, with shutters that are you know some of the details were just so beautiful uh, and that it, you know you sort of were, were moved by them you know every day because you see them and experience them and, and it was striking to come back to the United States and see such a lack of those those little touches and, and personal details and you know the care that a, a stone carver might have given to the, the, a cornice or something. And those do make a difference, and, and people relate to those, and uh, it, it sort of gives uh, character to space, and and uh, quality that that makes it special, and uh, helps somebody relate, uh, someone who might live in a building, relate to a space in a different way, and feel that it's their own. So um, those are things that, you know, an accountant would say, oh, well, that costs extra. It doesn't you know, help, you know, a person work, at least in their mind. And, <laughs> and so we we should eliminate it and uh, <laughs> yeah. just tear things down to the bare minimum. So those those little personal touches are important. You know, people like to analyze their space. If there are things that allow them to do that and the design accommodates that, that, that really helps. So, you know, I think yeah. it's those things. Yeah, before we... Um, run out of time, I would like to make a plug for please, equity. Please do. Please you know, do. One of the challenges in our profession and is something that we hope to uh, change is the uh, lack of equity, diversity, and inclusion in the profession. It's mm-hmm. uh, one of the, the, the things that um, everybody sort of has looked at and and talked about, but we we still have a long way to go. Um, yeah. There's there's just barely two percent of the profession out of there's probably you know, one hundred thousand architects in the the uh, country, and um, there's maybe eighteen hundred of those who are African American architects. So we really need to focus on elevating, and building a pipeline for um, inclusion and uh, inviting more people of diversity. And, and the same holds true with uh, Latinos and women. Women are underrepresented in the profession, although they have been making some progress. And so it's, it's one of the things that uh, is a challenge. Just like you know, my youth, oftentimes I think uh, some of the minorities may not have access or understand what the profession's about, and so the AIA is trying to encourage schools to teach more about architecture and encouraging our members to go into K-12 through schools to, Absolutely. Uh, to advocate yeah. for architecture and, and also identify students who might have uh, an interest and in, in skills in the area so that uh, we can improve those numbers and and i think if the profession itself reflects the demographics of the population it can better serve its uh, client base so yes. um, it's it's one thing that i think is really important and hope that we can make some change in
1: yeah so. vital actually what uh Programs are being in place. If you don't mind sharing that, that are doing that, or that are that are going to provide that outreach and advocacy.
3: Yeah. Well, we've started. The AIA has started some uh, programs uh, in uh, uh, K through twelve level, uh, developing a pipeline and some activities at uh, the uh, even the grade school level. And uh, even just taking students on tours and and allowing them to build spaces or draw things that uh, help them understand how architects think and work. And then at uh, the university level, the uh, Architectural Foundation, which is uh, related to AIA, is uh, offering scholarships. To uh, students and many minority students, so that's um, you know another another avenue. We we really think it's important. We also have some alliances with uh, the um, organization called Noma, National Organization for Minority mm-hmm. Architects, which um, has been growing in and trying to encourage more minority involvement in the in the profession. So. It's a challenge. The profession you know is it's not easy to get into. It um, is one that takes a lot of uh, time, as you you probably know oh, yeah. already, as your audience would know, with at least five years of undergraduate um, to, to get a a bachelor's degree, and then at least three years of an internship, and then an exam, a very lengthy exam, seven part exam, that uh, requires a lot a lot of study. And the average term from high school to uh, completion of, of uh, licensure is about 14 years. So it's it's daunting, and, um, and that discourages many people if they're not passionate about architecture. Yeah. <laughs> so that would steer them away. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you know likewise the um, you know the compensation can be challenging when you start out so you know student loans and all those other things you know are discouraging but uh it's a very rewarding um, experience in practicing and and designing things and and so i think people find it you know rewarding enough uh, in in other ways beyond just monetary that uh they they can see the the impact of their work and, and the way uh their spaces influence lives uh so i I think it's uh it's it's great for students to uh to pursue it and stick with it life work life balance is a challenge we work hard as and I think anybody who's in architecture school knows what the, uh, the, the long nights are, you know, a lot of all nighters and whatnot, but, <laughs> that's true. uh, that's part of the, uh, the profession as well, but it's a very satisfying profession for sure.
1: Bill, it's been an honor, really, really, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you as our guest today.
3: Well, thank you very much. I, I very honored to be considered for your show and, and, oh. uh, to be a part of it. And, uh, I will start to uh, listen to uh, your podcast now that
1: I'm aware of it. So keep Excellent. up the great work. It's it's really important uh, work that you, you do. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you. And thank you for being so gracious about uh, uh, in, in working with us. We really appreciate it. We hope you consider being on our show again when you, uh, you are a, a president of the AIA National. Be happy to do that. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very right. much, sir. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom DiAro. Our guest today has been William J. Bates, fellow of the American Institute of Architects. Bill has served as a member of the board of directors since 2011, along with as vice president and chair of the board community committee from 2015 to 2016. Bill is also vice president of real estate at Eaton Park Hospitality Group Incorporated. And an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon University. For more information, feel free to visit soa.cmu.edu/slash Bill Bates. That's soa.cmu.edu/slash Bill Bates. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, And lives.
2: The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineers are Darlene Franklin and Avery Big. Chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Jogi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dero. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu dot
0: Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect.